0: and welcome to the MEMSA Crossing Borders Contesting Boundaries podcast. I'm Emma Wall, a final year PhD student at Durham University. Our talk today features a paper by Ayaste Kiltanavacute. Ayaste is a third year PhD student in Italian at Selwyn College, University of Cambridge. Her previous degrees are in English, BA, and Comparative Literature, MPhil, also at the University of Cambridge. Ayaste specialises in medieval Italian literature and culture with a particular interest in Dante studies. Her thesis focuses on Dante's unorthodox understanding of the senses in visionary and dream experience, contextualizing Dante's dream writing in relation to theologically inflected late medieval vision genre more generally. Eiste's paper today is titled Dreaming as Border Crossing in Dante and focuses on the sensory experiences of Dante in the dreams of purgatory. The second of the realms of the afterlife through which the pilgrim journeys in the Commedia. Aiste will focus on the dream of Purgatory 9, the first of three dreams which occur in Purgatory, each delineating a moment of transition through the realm as Dante progresses to earthly paradise. I stay will discuss how this dream traverses the boundary between sleeping and waking as the pilgrim explores its potential as a liminal experience. Now I'll hand over to Aiste for what is a very interesting paper.
1: Thank you all so much for listening, and thanks a lot to the MEMSA community for making it possible for me to share my research with you. Today I will be looking at Dante's depiction of dreaming as an experience that enables the crossing of physical and conceptual boundaries. On the literal level, dreams enable important physical transitions in purgatory, allowing the pilgrim to proceed from one terrace of a purgatorial mountain to another. Perhaps more interestingly, These corporeal transitions are accompanied by reflections on the experience of dreaming, which challenges the boundaries of the individual body, raising the question to what extent the dreaming pilgrim is in control of what is happening, and to what degree his sensorium is permeable to external impressions and divine influences. Before we proceed any further, it seems important to ask, why is purgatory the realm of dreams for Dante? insofar as purgatory for Dante is situated in time, there is something very worldly about purgatory, which is not, like heaven or hell, the domain of the eternal, but rather the state of being betwixt in between. In the realm that is the very definition of liminality, the boundary between this world and the next seems as vague as the boundary between dream states and waking consciousness. In stressing the permeability of the boundaries between dreams, fantasies, and everyday consciousness in Purgatory, Dante develops his discourse of dreaming as capable of illustrating the Purgatorial predicament of a pilgrim, whose beliefs about the limits of a human sensorium are constantly being challenged. In Purgatoria 9, Dante explains that the need to sleep is the result of the vulnerability of a fallen human body, which, as Dante puts it, has something of Adam in it. For those possessing imperfect Adamic bodies, temporary sensory abandonment in sleep is necessary for the recuperation of intellectual and sensitive forces. Therefore, the need for repose that the pilgrim Dante experiences in Purgatorio reveals his perceptual constitution at its weakest and most human. But embracing this vulnerability may also be the means of regaining some of the Adamic Perylopsyrian perfection, since it is dreams that expedite Dante's transition through the Purgatorial Mountain until he reaches the earthly paradise, the first man's original habitat. Insofar as dreaming allows the pilgrim to continue his work of purgation, even when the body sleeps, Dante's Purgatorial dreams become not too different from saintly sleep defined as working sleep or somnus operarius by the church father Ambrose. One such dream is depicted in Purgatorio 9, a crucial moment of transition where the sleeping pilgrim is transported from the ante-purgatory into purgatory proper. Let us look at why Dante reaches out for the language of rapture to describe this transportation and how Dante's interrogation of the models of rapture, such as Saint Paul and Ganymede, enables a discussion about the involvement of the body and the mind in the dream. In Purgatorio 9, Dante falls asleep and dreams of being carried upwards by an eagle, quote, as terrible as a thunderbolt. It seemed the eagle and I both burned, says Dante. This burning is so relentless that Dante wakes up. The imagined fire scorched me so, that my sleep was disrupted and I awoke." He then finds out from his guide Virgil that his ascent has in fact been physical, and that the golden-plumed eagle has been a manifestation of St. Lucy, whose intervention has moved the way for Dante's transition to purgatory. The description of Dante's dream contains the poem's only use of a participial form, ratto. The language of rapture highlights that the dream, in contrast to the more continuous transformation that we see throughout Purgatorio, enacts drastic and abrupt change in compressed time, while there are other terms to denote the trance-like states of abstraction induced by proximity to God in medieval contexts, such as ecstasis or excessus mentis. Rapture conveys the idea of being overpowered by the divine presence. In his Summa Theologica, Aquinas makes a distinction between ecstasy and the even more intense experience of rapture. Quote, rapture adds something to ecstasy, for ecstasy means simply to be outside oneself, but rapture adds a certain violence to this. Raptus, from rapere, to snatch or seize, in the legal Latin of both classical and medieval times. Denotes a range of crimes, including robbery, kidnapping, abduction, and most frequently rape. The violence implicit in the classical Latin word carries forward into the later Middle Ages, when raptus also comes to designate a mystical condition, allowing Dante to explore the degree of compulsion involved in the process of coming closer to the divine. One of the models that Dante uses to describe his physical and psychological rapture is Ganymede. As Dante explains in lines 22-24, the pilgrim seemed to be in the spot where Ganymede left his companions behind when he was swept up. As the myth of Ganymede would have it, the beautiful youth was taken into the heavens by an eagle sent by Jove. Or, in some versions of the story, by Jove in the shape of an eagle, to act as the gods' cupbearer and lover. In all likelihood, one of the main sources for Dante's Ganymede is Book 5 of the Aeneid. In Virgil's version of the story, the tale of Ganymede is woven on the cloak given by Aeneas as prize to Colanthus, winner of a boat race the focus is not so much the act of rapture as the very medium of its depiction. Virgil provides a lengthy description of a cloak of braided gold that's fringed with twin ripples of melibbean crimson running around it, while the density of the description renders the materiality of Ganymede's body on the cloak almost palpable. In Virgil's account, as soon as a beautiful youth is swept up, his body disappears out of sight. We are left only with the image of Ganymede's guardians, who extend their palms directing their prayers at the unresponsive heavens, and the barking dogs giving vent to their rage. For Virgil, Ganymede's raptus cannot be narrated. Only his presence in the human world, and then their reactions to his disappearance, are expressible. Dante instead goes on to tell what it feels like to be raptured. While the experience of Ascent is never truly part of the scope of the Ganymede episode in Vagil's poem, it is an essential element of Purgatorio nine and the last two canticles of Commedia. While the model of Ganymede allows Dante to introduce the element of loving eroticism that lies behind the violence of Raptus, Saint Paul is Dante's authority on what it feels like to be raptured. As Zabonemeth explains, the state of rapture and its terminology were associated primarily and almost exclusively with St. Paul in the later Middle Ages. Perhaps the most striking aspect of St. Paul's account of his rapture in the second letter to the Corinthians is the degree of uncertainty involved in the experience. I know a man in Christ, says Paul, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Like in Paul's description, sometimes it is extremely difficult to differentiate between experiences in and out of body in Purgatoria 9. To give just one example, Dante's early commentators had difficulty in deciding whether the source of the sensation of conjoined burning is outside or inside the pilgrim's body. In medieval onerocriticism, the sense of burning could stand for the inner warmth within the pilgrim's body, an unnatural heat accidentally generated by food, fever or strong emotions, and thus the cause of sleep. For Dante's commentators, Jacopo della Lana, and Benvenuto da Imola, the heat that a pilgrim feels stands for the subconscious perception of a sublunary sphea of fire that greets him at the gate of purgatory. One might say that Dante comes closest to the Pauline model precisely by refusing to clearly differentiate between moments in and out of the body in the process of rapture. Taking the Pauline, Sive in corpore, Sive extra corpus. Not as a humble brag, but at face value, Dante thus becomes one of Paul's most faithful medieval interpreters. In De Genesi ad Litteram, Augustine writes, If the Apostle remained in doubt, who among us can have any certainty? Aquinas seconds him. Those who propound an opinion on the subject speak more from conjecture than from certitude. By presenting his readers with a decidedly ambiguous interpretation of a Pauline Raptus in Purgatorio 9, Dante similarly implies that there remains a kernel of the unknowable at the heart of a dream, which we, as modern literary critics, may have to accept as a necessary and humbling impasse. If productive doubt, an acknowledgement of uncertainty and an ability to reach a degree of comfort with it is precisely the lesson that the dream has to impart to Dante the dreamer. Dante the poet's depiction of raptus in Purgatorio nine demonstrates that he has internalised it. This doubt becomes an integral part of Dante's Pauline strategy, as his authority paradoxically stems precisely from their willingness to admit that he, like Saint Paul, has lived through an experience he is unable to fully explain, but has to tell anyway. How do some of the ideas about dream rapture explored in Purgatorio 9 relate to the comedy as a whole? In Paradiso 28, rapire is a term used to describe the forceful movement of the primo mobile, quote, the sphere which sweeps along with it the rest of all the universe, central to the continuation of life on Earth. Here the period designates not only a privileged visionary experience, but also the daily life-giving movements of the Dantean cosmos. Dante's depiction of a visionary sensorium thus can be understood as an amplified version of a daily rapture, of which we are not even aware. Rapture might be the continual condition of the human being in relation to God, but through the intensification of this condition in dreams, Dante might experience a glimpse of how loving this relationality is. Dante's raptus may also act as a rehearsal of the final rapture at the end of times. Writing on the second letter to the Corinthians, Aquinas contends, when St. Paul is said to be wrapped up, this means that God has shown him the life in which he will be contemplated in eternity. If the Apostle did not know whether his ecstasy had taken place in or out of his body, says Aquinas, such knowledge will be gained when our bodies are recovered at the resurrection of the dead, when the corruptible will have put on incorruption. As a prefiguration of the resurrection of the body, the main purpose of an account of rapture, such as Dante's, may then be not to provide definitive answers as to how it might work, but to kindle a longing for this futurity. Even if at the end of Purgatorio, the fundamentally human mode of dreaming must gradually recede into the background, so that you no longer speak like one who dreams, says Dante's beloved beatrice it has set us up for a different way in which we, as readers, must face the possibilities of the life to come, as well as the intellectual and affective challenges of Paradiso. There, when Dante is asked to imagine God as a point, or to experience the music and dancing like the blessed enjoy in Paradiso, the poet has to speak not like one who is dreaming, but like one who has dreamed. In this brief analysis, I hope to have shown that dreams for Dante are a testing ground for medieval theories of perception, and a way to reflect upon how we may break down on the threshold between sleeping and waking. In Purgatorio, Dante develops a discourse of dreams for the moments when the continuous narrative line cannot be sustained, and when the otherworldly intervenes in the poem's action in ways that challenge the boundaries of individual identity. By looking at the phenomenology of dreams in Dante, we may enrich our understanding of the medieval dream vision genre as a whole. That is, we may appreciate it not only as a conventional form for literary self-reflection, but also as a medium capable of attentively inspecting sensory-cognitive processes involved in such mysterious experiences as rapture, that disrupt the dualist distinctions between body and soul.
0: So hi everyone, I'm back here with Aiste for our Q&A on what was a wonderful and incredibly interesting and rich paper with her. Um, so say, just to start off with a more general question, um, does the invocation of a language of dreams um, in the canto suggest a certain ambivalence as to the accuracy of Dante's experience? Is this exceptional to purgatory, indicating perhaps a sense of anxiety about the doctrine of purgatory itself? Or does it also occur in the other canticles of the Commedia?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the question. I think that dreaming as depicted by Dante plays with the very idea of accuracy. Uh, To give you an example, at the end of his dream in Purgatory Nine, when he's half asleep, half awake, Dante describes his profound disorientation, which will be familiar to many of us who have ever woken up from a nightmare. Just as Achilles, says a poet, transported by his mother to an island unfamiliar to him, wakes up and casts his eyes about him, so Dante too goes pale and turns Kola's eyes out of fear. On the one hand, this is a description of being completely uncertain and possibly inaccurate in getting one's bearings. On the other hand, Dante's poetry is characterized by extreme linguistic precision when describing this uncertainty. So as a precedent, the ancient myth seems to validate Dante's experience, yet Dante's description of a confused awakening also authorizes the myth by making it seem more realistic and more accurate. And to answer your question about the association between purgatory and dreaming, we know that in the Commedia, Dante sleeps only in purgatory because purgatory is this transitional space embedded in human time And as such, it can accommodate the physical tiredness of a pilgrim's body and their related need to rest. But the language of dreaming appears in other canticles as well. For instance, Dante's early commentators sometimes identify his nel mezzo del camin, so the famous beginning of a poem, of being asleep. And one of the last lines in Paradiso also contains another sleep-related word, letargo. Uh, the language of dreaming in these examples is not used to describe the actual experience of dreaming. So what does it do in Inferno in Paradiso? Well, I don't really have a good answer to that yet, but I feel that the discourse of dreaming unfolds through other commedia. That it only becomes fully comprehensible after the dreams of purgatory. And the language of dreams is used to talk about experiences that put a strain on the sensorium and the intellect, and are just about graspable for a human being. For instance, Soniare in the sense of imaginative enabling thought that dares to venture beyond perceptual expectations appears in Inferno 16, where, where it is associated with Gerion, Dante's figure of frauds. Because of this association, there remains a suspicion that there might be something inherently misleading and potentially deceptive about the language of dreams. But I think that by means of purgatorial dreams. Dante explores how the imaginative powers of the mind and the seemingly counterfactual language that it generates can be used in bono and integrated in the purgatorial process. Okay, thank you. Can I just pick
0: up on a point from that I find really interesting about the precision of his language versus mm. the ambiguity of dreams. Do you think that that's perhaps a comment on the fact that the language itself cannot possibly Um, conceptualise or render fully the experience of the dreamer themselves?
1: I think that language in dreams is very very important and in this particular dream as I said in the presentation I think it is the only time that the word dratto is used in this particular form in the poem which kind of highlights the exceptionality of the moment but I think what's also interesting is the oral effect of a passage So, the ends of the poetic lines are particularly sibilant. Um, So, it almost seems that is the language of fire for Dante, because that's something similar occurs in Inferno as well, when he's describing Ulysses talking from the tongues of fire. And so, the sibilance of the words here offers this quasi-intuitive appeal to the ear, and although Dante identifies his experience as imaginary at this point, so the cracking of a fire audible in the words make, makes it seem more real if you like. So this paradoxical coexistence of sensory assertiveness and doubt in the same passage, I think creates a vivid literary impression of being perceptually confused.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting how the language and the sounds of it itself links to the dream experience to render it more visual. So speaking of the sensations rendered in that language, um, in the dream of the burning eagle in Purgatory 9, is it the intensity of that sensory experience which causes the waking? And how does the language relate to this? Is it the language that is causing the waking? Um, And is it similarly intense?
1: Yeah, I think... So Dante says that the imagined burning is a cause of his awakening, and whether this imagined burning consists of purely sensory impacts, or maybe there's also an affective element, so the reflection of Dante's fears and desires, I think that remains for readers for, for to decide. And so the effects of, you know, fire that I just discussed, I think that's also part of The Dante's way of conveying this ambiguous sensation to the readers.
0: Okay, wonderful. Um, One thing that I found really interesting in particular was the blending of sort of classical and Christian imagery um, Mm. in this dream. Um, Right back at the start in Inferno one, Dante says, "I'm not Aeneas, I'm not Paul." So when you're talking about the Pauline imagery in this dream, but then we have these Aenean overtones coming through um, with the visions of Ganymede. Um, What do you think this adds to the interpretation of the dream? Are these classical overtones intentional and what does that add to our interpretation?
1: Hmm. I think there is an interesting complementarity in the Christian and classical figures of the raptured, so Saint Paul and Ganymede, and they're both viable models models for discussing the involvement of the body in mystical experience in the Middle Ages. And I think that two main reasons that allow Dante to draw the parallel between himself, Ganymede and St Paul, namely the need to reconcile mystical and erotic rapture, and the importance of highlighting the element of necessary violence involved in the raptors, which for Dante doesn't need to have any kind of negative value attached to it. And so Ganymede's rapture, as described by Virgil and Ovid, is incredibly erotic and sensuous. But the classical authors do not really describe the sensation of a transported. So Dante instead attentively observes what happens to a raptured body, which is, unlike you no know, classical sources, a dreaming body. And to do so, he is, um, uses a model of St. Paul. So I think that the myth provides a problem of representation for Dante to think through. So in the realm of the uncertain, virtual gives time to the opportunity and the imaginative space to insert himself and to alter it and in order to represent to alter the narrative in order to represent raptus as accurately as possible for his Christian times.
0: Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, I was really interested in your interpretation of Purgatory Nine and the idea that there remains a kernel of unknowable at the heart of the dream. I was wondering whether you could possibly expand on this idea in relation to the other two dreams of purgatory in Kante 19 and 27. So these two dreams similarly traverse the boundary between the waking and the sleeping in a manner which renders it difficult to know whether the dream has taken place in or out of the body. And what sort of sensory experiences does Dante have in these dreams? Is it similar across all three in the purgatorial realm?
1: I think... What strikes me about all three purgatorial dreams is that they are all extremely realistic insofar as like real world dreams are not completely explicable by any kind of dream books or lunaries or that kind of thing. And our task as scholars often seems to be finding equivalences and supplying the definitive explanation, but perhaps Dante is suggesting here that this model of inquiry might not really be adapted to the mysteries of dreams and visions well, not completely, anyway. I think instead we are encouraged to accept the limits of our knowledge as part of the purgatorial process that fosters intellectual humility. And I think it's also true that in the two later purgatorial dreams, senses remain at least as important as in Purgatorial 9. So just to briefly describe what happens in those dreams. So in his dream in Canto 19, Dante sees una femina balba, a woman distorted and crooked in all her limbs and features. This shape-shifting creature uh, remarkably quickly transforms from impulsive to enticing under the dreamer's attentive gaze. Finally, Virgil reveals woman's true nature by uncovering her stinking belly, and the pleasure associated with the sound and vision must be weighted against at the disgust of the nose. I think that this dream reveals the cracks in the conventional medieval sensory hierarchies as the seemingly lower sense of smell is privileged in the dream in dispelling the sensory and mental illusion that Dante has and bringing the pilgrim back to wakefulness and self control. And the last purgatorial dream is the only one that does not get interrupted by unexpected perceptual intervention. And while I, don't, I haven't done extensive work on it yet, but I feel that it questions what constitutes sensory harmony in general and also foreshadows the potential for human perceptual perfection and the synesthetic integration of the senses that we will later find in the earthly paradise. Oh, that's really interesting. So
0: the language of the last dream in Canto 27, do you think it's different because Dante is almost at the climax of his purgatorial
1: experience? Yes, I think so. I mean, it always feels like the two previous dreams are preparation for that, part of the training. So if you want to see some continuity between the three dreams, so that it's only the third one that is the most. Well, it's it, it kind of almost embodies the kind of training that that is undergoing in the previous ones in order to be able to have this last dream. And then finally to proceed to earthly paradise.
0: Wonderful, thank you. And finally, the last question I have, a little bit longer, I'm afraid. Um, so when you were discussing the difference between ecstasy and rapture, I thought about um, Purgatorio 15 and Dante's use of the term "una statica visione," an ecstatic mm. vision um, of the soul's purging wrath, and the vision of which concludes with Dante saying. And when my soul returned outside itself, I met the things outside it that were real. Uh, So I've got a couple of questions about the interpretation of this vision in light of your paper. Mm -hmm. Um, So firstly, why do you think that Dante has used the phrase an ecstatic vision to dominate this experience? And I had a little look and it's actually the only use of the word ecstatic in the Commedia. So why do you think that this has possibly been used here? Um, mm-hmm. Secondly, what do you make of interpreting the vision that Dante has in this canto, given that it takes place in an apparently oneric space? Can its function be related to the other dreams that Dante has in purgatory as he progresses up the terraces? Um, and finally, given that Dante's statement that his soul has returned outside itself, to perceive once more real things? And Dante narrates that his guide saw him behave as if I were a man who's freed himself from sleep. To what extent does this version blur the threshold between sleeping and waking, and how does it relate to Dante's sensory experience within it? Um, do you have any thoughts or ideas at all, so I put a lot out there in that question. I've been more than one.
1: That's an excellent question. Uh, there's a lot in it, and I think Dante is participating in a debate about what constitutes ecstasy you know, in, in the Middle Ages, in his, in his period in, in Italy. Uh, and I think that the ecstatic vision Purgatory 15 must be read together with Purgatory 17, because in these two, Kanti, Dante encounters the examples of meekness and anger in the form of visions. So visions are sort of validated as um appropriate form of purgation, if you like. Uh, so in Purgatory 17, uh, it is imaginativa that seems to be responsible for visions, but the nature of Dante's imaginativa is such that it does not quite act as a traditional force in Galenic physiology. It has both passive and active traits and it acts as a combination of forces arising both from inside and outside of the pilgrim. It is personified as an alien feminine force, it is also somehow contained in the mind. And this canto uses the word imaginativa, imagine, visione, and even alta fantasia as somehow near synonymous. And in doing so, I think that Dante imagin- merges what, what were traditionally understood as different in a sense So Dante's terminology does not follow the distinctions that any particular thinker makes, apart from himself. Uh, so Dante effectively creates his own implicit Phenomenology of visionary perception, which is less restrictive than that of the theologians and medical thinkers of his day. And I think that is Dante's way of signaling that we are dealing with a mode of perception that requires the mind to operate more expansively than it normally does, activating the connections between diverse faculties and aspects of human perception. And the ecstatic visions in the central canti of purgatorio, I think, make clear what I believe is true of Dante's purgatorial dreams and visions in general. That is that visionary perception is intensely multisensory. So the seemingly ocular focus of the terms, vision and image, should not obscure the fact that for Dante, visions in the canto are speaking, feeling, touching, internal representations that Encourage by rethinking of the function of the senses, other than vision, in mystical experience. Carrying Dante to the times and places far beyond the reach of his physical body, his visions allow Dante to relive, as an observer, the classical and biblical narratives as dramatized events in his imagination. And I read cause vere, sort of true things, as things more easily or universally accepted as real when judging by our everyday standards of truthfulness. However, in the poem, the emphasis on the affective and the extensive description of the sensory make the vision seem no less real than the cosa vera, outside the visionary experience. Uh, What is particularly fascinating to me about purgatory is that categories of absolute truth and falsehoods don't really apply. and I think that the dreams are a good example of this. I think that one might even read Cosa vera" as an ironic comment, <laughs> since at the time when Dante is writing, the theology of purgatory is still very much in formation, and it is by no means obvious that purgatory is universally accepted as Cosa vera," at least not in the form that Dante gives to it. And what Virgil's comment about Dante's Dante being seemingly asleep makes evident is the difficulty in distinguishing between various dream and visionary states, especially for an outsider. I mean, no wonder Virgil mistakes Dante for a sleepwalker if he looks exactly like one. Um, and in Nova, Dante himself is constantly worried about what the dreams might reveal about his inwardness to the outside observers as he wakes up from his dreams or his trance-like experiences one of the first things he seems to ask himself is, did I not give away too much? Who else was there to see me and what did they see? So on the one hand, there seems to be extreme precision in Dante's visionary vocabulary that critics such as Robert Hollander highlights. On the other hand, poetry presents significant challenges to the traditional medieval classification of dreams and visions in as much as the cantica suggests that dreams and visions are somehow interrelated and exist on a continuum. I think that perhaps this amounts to Dante's admission that ultimately, just like categorization of angels, the categorization of dreams might be a futile intellectual exercise if we do not ask what the real purpose of dreams is, what kind of spiritual improvement they ask for, and what sort of purgative potential they carry. Well, thank you. I find that um, tension between
0: sort of the reality of dreams and their purpose, I think it really comes out um, throughout the the whole of purgatory. And definitely Dante is perhaps exploring what is unknowable. Mm -hmm. And you need to realise the higher purpose of these dreams and perhaps accept um, the the futility, as you expressed it, um, of that experience in order to understand a little bit more. Um, hmm. about their nature and thank yeah. you so much um, for um, your response to for my questions um, i felt like you really actually rendered the topic very accessible and um, your answers were very um thorough and so thank you ever so much for this thank you for joining us for this episode of the podcast this was a fascinating insight into the sensory experience of dreams and visions in Dante's Purgatorio, and I hope that you enjoyed Istay's paper as much as we did. So thank you very much to her again. If you'd like to find out more about the Mempsa podcast series, you can follow us on our Twitter account at Durham Mempsa, join our Facebook group, Durham Mempsa 2020-21. Or you can get in touch with us via email at memsa.committee at durham.ac.uk to be added to our mailing list. If you've enjoyed the discussion of medieval and early modern borders and boundaries in this and our other episodes, you may be interested in MEMSA's 15th annual conference on the same theme, which will be running as a digital event this July. Head to the MEMSA Twitter account, at Durham MEMSA, for the call for papers.